0: This morning we'll be looking at Ezra chapters 1 and 2. We'll read all of Ezra 1 and we'll look at parts of Ezra 2 for reasons that will become obvious in a few moments. Those of you who are looking ahead already know why. Before we begin this Old Testament book, it may help for us, I think it will be helpful for us, to set this book in its historical and biblical context. Uh, Maybe some of us have studied Ezra in the past, and maybe some of us have never studied Ezra. And I, for one, am looking forward to spending time in this Old Testament book. Uh, But as we do, let me kind of summarize a little bit of Bible history uh, before we get to it, just so that we can be thinking clearly and and rightly about this book, understanding it in its context. Now, Ezra, as a book of the Bible, does not stand alone. In fact, uh, most of the time when you Uh, look in your study Bibles, the notes that are there, or read in commentaries, you'll find Ezra and Nehemiah, those two books of the Bible, together. Now, Nehemiah does in the canon of Scripture, in the the bound copies of the Bible, Nehemiah does follow right on the end of Ezra. And most scholars believe that Ezra and Nehemiah uh, began as one book that over time were separated into two separate ones. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah has traditionally been understood to have Ezra as its author. Now that is for several different reasons, uh, primarily being that uh, Ezra is one of the main characters of Ezra Nehemiah. He shows up in both books, uh, even though he doesn 't show up until chapter Seven of the book that bears his name. Uh, other scholars believe uh, that Ezra is also the writer of first and Second chronicles, and part of that comes to us or part of the evidence of that. Uh, that opinion comes to us in the fact that the very end of 2 Chronicles, the last five or six verses of that book of the Bible, which are on the page before Ezra, mirror this, the very first verses of the book of Ezra, almost word for word. And so scholars see consistency there and uh, feel that it's probably the same author. I will side with the majority of scholars who uh, do believe that Ezra probably is the primary author of First and Second Chronicles. Also, Ezra and Nehemiah, though there may have been some editors who came afterward to uh, either clarify things that were said or or add some other details. Now, the book of Ezra itself begins with the people of Israel and Judah in exile in Persia. But let's recall how they got there. In about 1000 BC, David, the Goliath giant slayer and former shepherd, came to be king of Israel. David reigned for 40 years, and he was succeeded on the throne by his son Solomon. Solomon. Solomon was very wise until the uh, uh, until I don't know the middle portion of his reign, and he began marrying all sorts of wives from pagan nations, and included uh, allowed the people of Israel to include worship to pagan gods and goddesses inside even the temple of God in Jerusalem. And so, when Solomon died, uh, about 924 B.C., the kingdom of Israel, racked by idolatry and scandal, was split into two. The northern kingdom of Israel would go on for 200 more years, Under idolatrous kings who constantly disobeyed the word of God and called to repentance from his prophets, ultimately God handed over the northern kingdom of Israel uh, to the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians are particularly nasty people. They were like the Borg from Star Trek. They sought only to uh, uh, assimilate the biological and technological distinctives of the people that they had conquered. They would be assimilated. The southern kingdom of Judah, however, like the northern kingdom of Israel, would have mostly bad kings, but not all bad kings. There were a few good ones who led the people of Judah to respond to God with repentance from time to time, which did periodically invoke God's mercy for them. Their repentance, unfortunately, was often incomplete and temporary, and so in time God allowed them, like the northern kingdom of Israel before, to be conquered and carried off by a pagan nation, not the Assyrians, but this time by the Babylonian Empire and by the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. He was the one who conquered the Judahites in 586 B.C. During that time, a prophet Jeremiah prophesied, during the period of destruction and exile of those that lived in Judah and Jerusalem, that after 70 years, God would punish the Babylonians and ultimately bring his people back to the land of Judah into the city of Jerusalem. So it was that in the mid-500s BC, now just a few more years down the road, the king of a growing empire named Persia, the king's name was Cyrus, began to mount a dominating military movement that would conquer the Babylonian Empire. So the Persians would overtake the Babylonians and all of the lands that they previously had conquered, and then some, including the land of uh, Jerusalem, Judea, uh, Samaria, that part of the world. Now the Assyrians, who we spoke about before, those Borg-like people, who conquered Israel, the Assyrians took the military perspective that it was best to, when conquering a people, totally destroy uh, their enemies and their cities, to put the heads of their military leaders on stakes outside their city gates, and then spread out and breed out the conquered people, breed them out of existence. The Babylonians were a bit kinder in the way they dealt with uh, conquered people in that they merely forced the conquered people into service to the Babylonian kingdom and dispersed their enemies in small pockets uh, all around their empire to keep them from being able to come together uh, and coalesce into a rebellion against the Babylonians. But the Persians were a different animal altogether. Some might even call the Persians merciful because beginning with Cyrus, the king who is mentioned in the first verses of Ezra, the last verses of 2 Chronicles. Beginning with Cyrus, the Persians viewed all the peoples of their empire, including those that they had conquered by military might, and they viewed those people and their various gods as helpful servants of the Persian empire. So Cyrus would allow conquered peoples to return to their homelands with Persian resources to rebuild. He would send them under the authority of his own designated governors and satraps, believing that it was better to have the people of the Persian empire as willing subjects who practiced their various religions, paid their due taxes, and supported Persia's pluralistic dominance. So when we get to the opening verses of Ezra, this is what we find Cyrus doing. And this is the background and the setting for what takes place in Ezra and Nehemiah. The return of the exiled people... Of Judah going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and then to rebuild the wall around the city. The year is now at the beginning of Ezra 1, the year is 538 BC, and Cyrus is directing and provisioning the very first wave of Judah's returnees for the purpose of rebuilding their temple in Jerusalem. And this is the the theme that all of Ezra sort of circles around the rebuilding of the temple. But really, the, the the purpose of Ezra is is not to show that the uh, demonstrate how people can come together to rebuild a house of worship to God rather the central theme of Ezra is how God rebuilds his people how God rebuilds his people around worship and around a uh, right worship of God in these first two chapters of Ezra as we get started in this book we will find that the Lord God of Israel controls kings and calls his people to fulfill his intentions. It is God who executes his sovereignty for the purpose of leading his people to return to Judah and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem as a testimony to his glory and a testimony to his providence among his people. This morning, I hope that we would see and find, in the context of Ezra One and two, that God always ensures that His purposes are fulfilled. God always ensures that His purposes are fulfilled. And even in those times in life where we think we are in control, where we are making our own destiny, it is God who is sovereign over every one of our movements and motives. I would hope this morning that we would, in light of this truth, be comforted by the reality of God's sovereignty. Be comforted by it. Find hope in it. And respond with obedience to His calling. Stand with me, would you, as we honor God by reading His word. Ezra 1. Ezra, the high priest, writing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records this history of the people of Israel. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says King Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let every survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem, and placed them in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them thirty basins of gold. 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. And God bless us as we study his word this morning. You may be seated. God always ensures that his purposes are fulfilled. He is sovereign over every one of our movements and motives. We see this truth reflected in three different ways in the text this morning. First, we see this, that Yahweh, the personal name of the Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh controls the kings of the world. There is no more important concept for us to grasp this morning as we begin this study of Ezra, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, than this, that God is in control. He's in control of the motion of the stars in the galaxy. He's in control of the seasons and the weather of the earth. He's in control of the good and the bad circumstances and situations of our life. And he is in control of the very motives of our hearts and intentions of our minds. Notice again verse 1. Ezra writes, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord, Yahweh, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia so that he made a proclamation. Who's making the proclamation that the Judahites, the exiles, may return? Cyrus is. Cyrus is the one with the he's, he's the one whose signature appears at the bottom of that proclamation. But whose plan is it? And where does the ultimate motivation for this return of exiles come from? The Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. It is he who stirred the heart of Cyrus to do what he wills for Cyrus to do and it is his will to stir Cyrus, to move him, to motivate him this way, so that God's own word to the prophet Jeremiah some uh, uh, several years, decades before, might be fulfilled. Specifically, that God himself would preserve and return a remnant of his people, of Israel, uh, returning them to Jerusalem for his own glory and for his own namesake. Now, Cyrus himself is not totally ignorant of God's work here. Surely, we ought not to conclude that uh, Cyrus was a follower of Yahweh, I, I think there's enough evidence in the first part of Ezra to, to, to ensure that we do not believe that Cyrus was a convert to, uh, uh, to, to Judaism because he constantly refers to the God who is in Jerusalem. It's a God for that place and for that city and for that people. He's not my God, but he's a God all the same. That's how Cyrus feels about it. Cyrus was a polytheistic pagan, and as a polytheistic pagan, he's glad to give credit to to divine beings who he feels have given him favor. And so he does to Yahweh. So Cyrus is also inclined to pay homage to the Lord of Israel by allowing the people who belong to Yahweh, the people who belong to God, to worship him as they please in their own land. Cyrus thinks it will do him some good, uh, do his reputation some help with the God of Israel if he supports the people of Israel to worship that God. Here's the point we must not miss. That God always ensures that his will is done as he superintends every event of human history. Is Cyrus acting for his own good and, his own, and, and, and by his, his own seeking to, to uh, improve his lot in life and his standing with the various gods of the world? Yes, Cyrus is totally selfish in this. Is Cyrus doing this because he believes that the Lord, the God of Israel, is sovereign over all people and all nations and everything in the world, and he wants to be obedient to this God? No, but God knows that. God knows these things are true about himself, and God knows what is true about Cyrus, and God is pleased to use even polytheistic pagan kings to accomplish his purposes. For Psalm 115, 1 through 3 says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why do the nations say, where is their God? For our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Just as God controlled the intentions of Cyrus, stirred Cyrus's heart that Cyrus might do these things to accomplish God's will, so also does God control and stir the intentions of every world leader even today. Paul writes to the church in Romans in uh, Romans 13, verse 1. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Friends, there is great comfort for us in this wonderful doctrine of God's sovereignty, of God's sovereign control over all things because God superintends every event in human history for his glory and for his purposes, we may have real hope in uncertain times. You better believe that the exiles of Israel lived in uncertain times, in a land not their own, desiring to go home, but not having any avenue to do so until Cyrus says, you may. Even if we cannot see how tragic events of our lives may serve God's greater purpose, we can still rest on the truth that it does. That our God, who does all that he pleases, is willing and working for his glory in the lives of his people. We may take comfort in the knowledge that in the scope of eternity, every evil will be answered. Every setback will be seen rightly. Every seeming injustice will be made right. And every good thing will be seen in full for the divine blessing of God that it is. Even if we cannot see it now, we can trust that God is working all things together for His glory and for good for those who are called according to His purposes. Church, this morning, comfort your soul with the truth of God's sovereignty. Comfort your heart with the reality that God is sovereign. I enjoy riding roller coasters, although the older I get, the harder it seems to be on my body. Uh, That's just whatever. That's what happens when you turn 30. Roller coasters aren't as fun as they used to be. They're still fun. You just... A little more dizzy afterward. But I always, when going to a new theme park, getting on a new roller coaster that I've never ridden before, I always take some comfort, uh, breathe a little bit easier when that safety harness or that bar comes down over my shoulders or down over my lap as I buckle the seat belt, depending on what kind of roller coaster it is. Breathe a little easier, knowing that when we go through the loop-de-loop or the corkscrew, that I'm not going to go flying out the side of the thing because there is this bar holding me down i may not know all the twists and turns and and exciting heights and and terrifying depths and drops that this roller coaster may uh intend for me but there is rest there is comfort there is peace in my soul and in my gut when that uh, restraining bar comes down to hold me in dear friends so it is with god and in life Yet in such a metaphor, God is not merely this safety bar that comes down over our shoulders to protect us from the twists and turns and difficult things in our life. No, God is not only the safety bar, but He's also the car that we ride in. He is the wheels upon the carriage. He is the tracks and the brakes and the very operator of this thing. He alone knows all the twists and turns and loops and corkscrews. And in the grip of His sovereign grace, we can rest and take comfort and breathe as we depend upon Him to guide and to guard and to hold told his people regardless of how treacherous, how dangerous, how uncertain life may seem. The things that we encounter in this life may be terrifying to us, may seem on their face evil as wicked people do what they want. But we trust that in the scope of eternity, as God brings all things to a close, that we will step off of this roller coaster of life, step into eternity with even greater confidence that God did all he intended to do and he did not lose a one of his people in the process. Dear friend, comfort your heart with the truth of God's sovereignty. God controls the kings of the world. Yahweh also calls and stirs his people. Not only does Yahweh, the God of Israel, control the kings of the world, but he also moves and stirs the people who are called by his name. Look again at verse 5 of Ezra 1 with me. After Cyrus makes the decree allowing anyone to return to rebuild the temple, we read these words, Then rose up, The heads of the fathers' uh, houses of Judah and of Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Now, the task ahead of the Israelites that are returning to Judah is crucial. They will be rebuilding the temple of God that has lied in ruins, destroyed uh, by the Babylonians over the last 50 years. The temple itself was the very icon of God's presence among his people in the Old Testament. It started as a tent in the wilderness of Sinai, constructed by those who followed Moses out of Egypt. Then David's son Solomon built the first permanent temple, the one that was destroyed by the Babylonians. Its opulence and beauty was only to be illustrative of the wondrous miracle of God's presence there in that place and of His forgiveness of the sins of His people as they made atonement and repented through the offering of sacrifices on the altar outside the temple. Because the temple had such significance, its rebuilding cannot be by the effort or strategizing of mere men. God will ensure its success as he calls and equips his people to do it. I believe there's great encouragement for us in this reality that God calls and stirs his people to do what he desires them to do for his glory. Could God have miraculously caused these lifeless stones uh, toppled upon the temple mount in Jerusalem to stack themselves in order upon that mount in the form of a new temple? Of course he could. Of course he could. Of course God could have snapped his, his fingers, so to speak, and caused the entire temple in greater glory to be reconstructed miraculously. But he doesn't. He chooses rather to use his people to do the work to call his people out of exile, to return to Jerusalem in Judea, and to put their hands to the task of rebuilding the house of God. Through the process of their work, God will teach them a lot about themselves. He will remind them of their past sins, of their need for future obedience. And through this task, and of his own power and might, uh, he will demonstrate that he is able to do things through a weak but willing people that God enjoys doing glorious things through a weak but willing people. Yahweh calls and stirs His people to act on His behalf and for His glory. So, dear friend, when God calls or stirs you to act, you must also follow in faith and obedience if you seek to please Him. When God calls and stirs you to act, follow in faith and obedience. Sometimes I fear that we treat our following Jesus as disciples of Christ too lightly too flippantly. Jesus calls to all. We see him in the Gospels as he calls his first disciples, a call that he extends to everyone who will trust him by faith. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. To say yes to the call to follow Jesus is to say yes to living as one who walks as Jesus walked, to talk as he talked, to love as he loved, and to glorify God as Jesus did, to be made into something by him. Follow me, says Jesus, and I will make you something you are not yet. A life of following God as he leads, of following Christ as Savior, is not to be a life of mere fandom or spectatorship, or cheering from the sidelines. We all did our best impersonation of that last Sunday afternoon as we watched my poor beleaguered 49ers get beat by the treacherous chiefs of Kansas City. (laughs) That's neither here nor there. We are really good fans, not just of football, but we have even been taught culturally to be really good fans of God to carry signs, to carry posters to say, I love God. He is awesome. Slapping bumper stickers on our car and calling that following Jesus. Dear friends, that is not following Jesus. That is mere fandom. If it does not follow with other sorts of actions, acts of obedience, the call to follow Jesus, being called by him, being stirred by God, is a call to be fully committed to the mission of God, to glorify himself by rescuing sinners as they put their confidence in Jesus as the Savior who died for their sins and rose again. So if you're a Christian, know this. God has called you to active, obedient, faith-filled, and joyous participation in this mission. What a privilege. What a privilege it was for these Israelites, for these Judites, to be called out of exile to participate in God's rebuilding of his house of worship in Judah, that, that they might celebrate in his goodness and his faithfulness and his loving, uh, faithful love to his people. What a privilege for the Israelites to be used by God for his purposes. Dear Christian, what a privilege it is for us who trust Jesus by faith to be used by God for his purposes, that we might glorify him among the nations, as we point people to Jesus, we are not called to fandom. We are called to followership. So then let us take full advantage of our calling in Christ to do what God has called us to do and to do it with boldness and with courage and with fullness of heart, knowing full well that the God who calls will also ensure the success of the mission that he has called us to. And that brings us to our final point. That Yahweh, even as He controls the kings of the world and as He calls and stirs His people to to accomplish His purposes, so also does Yahweh provide for the success of His will. Yahweh provides for the success of His will. There's not a thing that God will call you to do in life that He will not also provide all that is necessary for fulfilling it. God does demonstrate His sovereignty in this passage, Ezra 1. Ezra 1 and his empowering call to his people. But what is all the more encouraging in this text is that God also provides in multiple ways for the success of his will and of his purposes. Let's look at four, at least four ways that God provides very quickly. First, he provides resources. We see how God provides the physical resources for rebuilding the temple in several places of this passage. In chapter 1, verse 4, Cyrus says in his decree that the men who, who, uh, who do not go with the Judahites back to Jerusalem, those who stay behind, should help those who are going by providing silver and gold, goods and beasts, and free will offerings uh, to, to see to the financing of the work that is to be done. Moreover, Cyrus himself gives back all of the elements of the temple, the bowls, the censers, the other things that were used in the ritual worship in the temple. He gives all of those things back that had previously been stolen by Nebuchadnezzar. And then at the end of chapter two, if you'll maybe turn the page over or look on the next page, we read these verses. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and all the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest uh, in their towns. That's the wrong verse that I meant to read. I'm sorry. The verse before it, 69. According to their ability, excuse me, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 61, derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. The people of Judah, who have returned, are also themselves giving to the work that is to be done. But again, remember, God is the one who stirs Cyrus. God is the one who calls his people. And if there is any provision for the work that is to be done, the credit for that provision is to be given to God. God provides resources. God also provides leaders. Look with me at Ezra chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here we get a short list of all those who returned as leaders of Israel. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and to Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reoliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baana. I want to drop the mic after nailing all those Hebrew names. (laughs) God provides leaders for his people who are doing the thing that God has called them to do. I want to highlight just a few of these uh, leaders for a moment. First of all, Zerubbabel, which not only is an awesome name, but it's a name that means something. His name is a compound name between uh, the Hebrew word Zarah, meaning seed or offspring, and Babel, uh, short, short for Babylonia. He is the seed of Babel. He is the offspring of, of Babylonia. Zerubbabel is a representative of the entire generation of exiles who were born in exile. Zerubbabel is the kingly figure of the return to, uh, to Jerusalem and to uh, Judah. He's a grandson of Jehoiachin, the last king of Judah to be taken into captivity. He is mentioned in uh, the prophets, the Old Testament prophetic books of Zechariah and Haggai. And Zerubbabel himself will become governor in Judea uh, upon the return of the people to, uh, to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel is going to show up uh, several places in the rest of Ezra, so familiarize yourself with him. He's the kingly governing type of figure. Then we have Jeshua which is the same name as Joshua, which is the same name as Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Jeshua is the high priest of those who are returning. And it is important that there is a high priest who is returning with the people to Jerusalem because without priests, the temple can neither be consecrated nor served. All of the work that is done in the temple of God in that house of worship is conducted by priests who are overseen by a high priest. And he is the only one who can, make a, who can offer the sacrifice of atonement for all of the people of Israel once a year on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. Without a high priest, there's no atonement for all the people, for God to mediate his grace through. So it is good that there is a high priest returning. We have two people with familiar names who are not who you think they are. Nehemiah and Mordecai are mentioned here in verse 2 of chapter 2. And these are almost certainly not the ones, uh, not the Nehemiah that appears in the second half of Ezra Nehemiah, and not the Mordecai who appears in, uh, in the book of Esther. These are probably just common names uh, uh, among the people of Judah, Hebrew names. Uh, th- then they are just representative of other of the um, exilic and post exilic people uh, that, that returned to uh, Jerusalem. So you have Nehemiah and Mordecai Mordecai, names that seem significant, but in the purpose or in the context of verse 2, they're not because they're referring to different people. But then we have in chapter 1, verse 8, a reference to another leader, a man named Sheshbazar, who is kind of a cryptic figure. His name only shows up twice in Ezra, both times in Ezra chapter 1, and then we don't hear about Sheshbazar anymore. He's the one to whom is counted out all of the things, all the gold and silver that Cyrus is is sending back with the people to Judah. His identity is kind of fuzzy. Some scholars believe that Sheshbazar is just another name, perhaps a Persian name for the, the, the prince of Judah, the governor of Judah returning named Zerubbabel. That Zerubbabel may have had two names. You know, when Daniel is taken into exile by Nebuchadnezzar, his name is changed to Belteshazzar. Our friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, those are their Babylonian names, names that uh, give reference to service to Babylonian gods, but their Hebrew names are Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. So it could be that Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel are the same person that Zerubbabel had a Babylonian name and he also had a Hebrew name and he's referred to as Sheshbazar in chapter 1 verse 8 and then by his Hebrew name in the rest of Ezra book. Ezra's book. We don't know, but there is a leader provided all the same. It is important to know that God does not provide random leaders for his people to carry out his purposes for them. God provides the right leaders for his people. They will need a governor. They will need someone to provide political governance and leadership. And he provides that in Zerubbabel. They will need a priest, someone to to work, do the work of the temple and lead the people in proper worship to God. And he provides that in Jeshua. When God calls his people to fulfill his purpose, he will resource them by his own provision and through the provision of others. And he will provide leaders. God also provides workers. This is the purpose of much of chapter two, Uh, all the lists of names and numbers that come along with it, which is part of the reason we'll not read all of them, because as well as I did in chapter two, verse two, with all of those Hebrew names, I'm not so confident I would do as well with the rest in chapter two. Sometimes we come to places like this where we have these lists of names, these inventory of of residents of people in Israel, and we're not really sure what to do with them. I don't know any of these people. So far as I know, I'm not related to them, and I'm not even sure why all of these numbers matter. Well, just like you, if you had a friend who worked on a movie in Hollywood, just like you would watch that film through all the credits looking for your friend's name, your family member's name, to say, I know that guy. So, also, would have been the approach of most he, of the Hebrews who returned to Judah to worship God and, and be rebuilt as a people. They would go through and read Ezra and the similar uh, tally of people that appears also in Nehemiah and say, I know that guy, I'm from him. Right? These names, these lists that, that come to us are not without significance, certainly to the people who first read and understood uh, the, the, the book of Ezra Nehemiah, and Nehemiah, and certainly not to those people who, who returned, to the people who were, were named here as those that went back among the first wave. These names are not insignificant, so let us not just skim over them assuming that they have no meaning. I think, though, for our purposes today, the organization of the lists of people is what's most important. See the kinds of workers that God provides, not just people, but particular kinds of people. First of all, you have in chapter 2, verses 4 through 34, and you can read just kind of the first sentence of each of these paragraph breaks. You have the number of men of the people of Israel. These are the, 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 the men of Israel that returned, the number of them, and all of their family heads. These are those who will do the work of rebuilding. These are the people who, whose blood, sweat, and tears uh, uh, were, were involved in putting the temple back together. These are the men who developed calluses on their palms as they worked to reinstate the right worship of God. In chapter 2, verses 36 and 37. We get the priests mentioned, you see, the priests, the son of uh, Jediah of the house of Jeshua, 973, sons of Emmer, sons of Pashur, sons of Harim. These priests are, uh, and, and one mentioned that's a descendant of the high priest, will, will be the ones who will do the work of daily sacrifice and leading and worship. Again, without priests, there can be no worship in the temple. So God is providing the right kind of workers. Chapter 2, verses 40 and 42, we see Levites returning. Levites were those who descended from the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 sons of uh, Jacob, whose name was changed to Jerusalem. Among the Levites, uh, Moses' brother Aaron was the chief. And so from Aaron's line would come the high priests and from all of the other Levites, other, uh, uh, other priests would come. And so we, here we have representation, not just of a few priests that come, but a whole tribe of, of, of uh, uh, eligible priests who are returning. We have listed also singers and gatekeepers, all of these all together who would serve in the temple, who would lead in singing, who would tend to the gates of entry into the temple complex to make sure that people are entering with the right heart, with the right state of mind, with the right purposes. In chapter 2 verses 43 through 58 we have lists of the servants of the temple and servants to the king of Israel. These will be important for all the same reasons before because without worship and without proper leadership there cannot be a people that that God is working through to uh, expand his glory and his fame among the nations. So, God provides resources. God provides leaders. See how He also, in Ezra 1 and 2, provides workers to get the job done. But then, my favorite way that God provides in chapter 2, verses 59 through 63, we see God, Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, the God of all the universe, providing security for the lost. Look at chapter 2, verses 59 through 63. Ezra writes the following: Were those who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Kerub, Adon, and Immer, though they could not prove their fathers' houses or their descent whether they belonged to Israel. Verse 62 says, "These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. And the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim." Though there are a whole host of people who are coming back from exile in uh, in Persia to Judah, there's a whole bunch of them who cannot, like the many verses earlier in Ezra chapter two, cannot prove their lineage as Israelites. They are lost people in the genealogies of Israel either because their family lost their documentation of their lineage as rightful sons of sons of sons of sons of sons of Levi or Benjamin or Judah or whoever, or because maybe some of these were pagan converts, people who had been converted to Judaism among the exiled people. Irrespective of who, where they came from, they are lost, and yet God provides security for them. They do not come as... as unidentified people with no prospect of hope or life in the new land. Rather, they come with all the prospect of hope and life in the land that God is returning them to. They may have no clear genetic tie to Israel that they can prove with paper, but we know that neither genetics nor family trees are what make one a member of God's people, but only faith. Faith in the God who promises and faith in the God who fulfills his promises. God provides security even for those who have been lost to history. Dear friends, this God who calls his people back home after decades in exile calls from his word for people from all nations and backgrounds to return as well, even today. Not to return to Jerusalem, but to return to the purpose for their existence. Though we have made ourselves liable to the punishment of death for our sins against God and a permanent spiritual exile in hell, God has provided all that is necessary for your salvation from sin and your return to God. All that was necessary was not silver or gold or leaders. What was necessary for God to fulfill his purpose of salvation in your life was a son, his son, God in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth who lived and loved and healed and taught without ever sinning so that when he was unjustly crucified for sins that he had not committed, that God the Father could look upon him as a perfect and final sacrifice for your sins. He was all that was necessary. My dear friend, have you received God's provision of a Savior? Have you been made safe from death and hell by faith in Jesus? Have you been raised in spirit to new life in Christ? What you need is impossible to achieve on your own. But God has provided all that is necessary. God provides even security for people who are lost. If only they'll trust in him. Do so today. Trust God's provision today. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. In light of seeing how God provides all that is necessary for fulfilling his purposes, my encouragement to us today is this. Walk in faith. Walk in faith, walk in trust, walk in sincere belief and hopeful expectation in God, knowing that he provides all that is necessary for his purpose in your life. Dear Christian, you may trust God's sovereign power. You may have responded in faith to his call to you to turn from your sin and to trust Jesus, his son, for your salvation. But there may still be other large things looming in your life that you wonder if God can provide for. Perhaps you're trusting and praying for God to bring you a husband or a wife. Maybe you're relying upon God to grant healing of a chronic illness. Maybe you're trying to get pregnant and have children or seeking to adopt a child and it seems that every one of your efforts has been thwarted. It's been blocked. Nothing is successful. It might be the case that you have a family member or a friend who is without Jesus in their life. You're one that you have shared the hope of the gospel with a dozen times to no avail. Maybe God has called you sense that he has planned and stirred you to act on a call to the mission field among an unreached people group in a dangerous place but your existing student debt makes that an impossibility for now do you trust God's good and total care for the universe are you certain of his leading in your life then dear friend you who are waiting for big big things things that you know that God has called you to and you continue to pursue even though they don't seem to be taking place seem to be happening continue following God in obedience walking in faith knowing that if indeed God has truly called you to these things, that he will provide all that is necessary for his purpose in your life. He may do it miraculously. More likely, he may use the people and community of the church around you to come alongside and assist you in, in, uh, in accomplishing his purposes. But trust, dear Christian, that if it is necessary, if God has called you to it, he will do it. Church, God builds his people. God builds the people of Israel back into a nation called by his name to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a righteous representative of a holy God to the world. God builds his people in Ezra. God builds his people today as he calls us to faith in Jesus, his own son, the only one who could give us hope of salvation. God builds his people, and it is he who sovereignly ensures that all his purposes are fulfilled. So let us rest in this wonderful truth. Let us follow him in obedient and faith-filled joy, the sovereign God of the universe who controls kings, who calls and stirs his people, and who provides all that is necessary for fulfilling his purpose of glorifying himself in the world as he brings people to saving faith in his son Jesus. Let's pray.